Hey, we had a great concert here uh, Friday night with Ketchy, and uh, she did a great job. What a delightful person and a great uh, evening of worship. And if you missed it, you got to stop doing that. You got to stop missing things. God's doing lots of great things around here, and you need to be a part of it. And in October, we have Taryn Wells coming. And that is, we're already getting calls, and the tickets, I believe, will go on sale this week. You'll see that on our social media sites. And here's the thing. If you are one of our normal impact people who waits until the very end to make your decision and get tickets, you're not going to get tickets to this one. We expect this place is going to fill up, that we're going to have all 800 chairs out, that we're going to fill this place up. And so when you see tickets go on sale, you need to purchase them. Okay, it's in October, I believe the 17th, and uh, you will see more information about that, but be sure to get your tickets and quit missing stuff around here, okay? Now, we're in the midst of our Love the Berg series, and many churches emphasize what they're against, and they emphasize what they hate. We want to be known for what we are for. We want to be known for what we love, and we love the Berg. We love the people of this area. We are for you, and we are for the people of the airport area. And we're using this series to kind of hit the refresh button on our vision. In a couple of weeks, I will celebrate my 10th anniversary as your pastor. And so we thought this was a good time for us to kind of review and renew our vision. And we're unpacking some ways that we are working to pursue God and to build community, and to unleash compassion together. And if you've missed any of the messages, the first two in this series, then I encourage you to go back and listen to them online so that you can celebrate what God is doing and so that you can be a part of the big things that God is about to do. But let's jump into today's message. And again, you can open your YouVersion app and you can find our notes under events and uh, you can use that or you can use one of the note cards in the chair back and uh, it will allow you to take your own notes. But have you noticed that the word ordinary has kind of changed? The word ordinary is now almost an insult. I mean, think about it. If your friend said to you in high school, hey, your girlfriend, she's pretty ordinary looking right? Or if you got up from the table after having dinner and someone said, you know, your mom's cooking is really ordinary tasting, you know, or they look down at your brand new newborn baby and they say, wow, that baby's really ordinary. I mean, that's kind of an insult, right? I mean, you wouldn't put a bumper sticker on your car that said, my child is an ordinary student in the Moon School District. We don't like the word ordinary, and because ordinary has kind of become an insult, we as parents strive to make sure that our kids aren't ordinary. Parents are making sure their kids are taking lessons and playing sports and joining clubs and doing all sorts of things, and they're hoping that their child will excel at one of those things, and uh, they're hoping that their child will excel so that they can get a scholarship or maybe become a superstar and become rich and famous. But here's the truth. 
most will be disappointed because most of our kids will grow up to be ordinary just like us. They'll become ordinary just like us. And that doesn't have to be a bad thing. I mean, they can become wonderful, happy, secure, ordinary people. I fear, though, that many kids will look back at a childhood so filled with events and activities that they will only remember being pushed and being pushed for more. I'm afraid some will enter adulthood feeling like a failure or at least feeling like they disappointed their parents because they never really excelled at any of the things that they were pushed to do. And none of us want that for our kids. We don't want that. And it doesn't have to be that way. Their memories looking back don't have to be ordinary. You can decide to structure your family in such a way that your kids look back and they say, my family was extraordinary. It was extraordinary. If you apply principles from the Bible, if you set your priorities according to his will, then you can have your kids look back and see how much you loved them and see that their parents cared enough to build for them a foundation of faith that they could build on when it came time for them to make their own decision to follow after Jesus and an impact. We want to help you build a great family that makes it easy for your kids to follow Jesus. At Impact, we love families. We love families. And some of you are thinking, well, Pastor Steve, doesn't everybody love families? The answer to that would be no. They really don't. I mean, for some, even the word family brings up some stress and strife in their life. I mean, for some, the word family isn't a nice word. They grew up in a home that was filled with anything but love. It wasn't a good experience. It was filled with hate and anger and abuse. Or it was just filled with apathy, with neglect. And if that was your experience, I would understand why you don't really like a message titled, We Love Families. Others entered into marriage with great hopes, great hopes of having a great marriage and having a great family, and it didn't work that way. It didn't work that way. I mean, their marriage ended in divorce, or their marriage has just been a place where they've kind of survived together, and it's caused a lot of hurt, but it's been anything but happy. And others might be single today. They might be single, and they may want to stay that way. Or they might be single and they hope to marry someday, but either way, they may be rolling their eyes right now because in their mind, when the church uses the word family, it, it feels like it excludes them. It feels like it kind of sets them on the outside. And if you're in one of those situations, I want you to stay open to what God wants to say to you today because we may mean something different than what you think when we say that we love families. And we pray God will use our church to unleash compassion towards people who have been or are being hurt by the word family, that we can build community in such a way that people can experience in our church what God intends for us to experience within our families. 
So let's begin by understanding the priority. Families are a priority and impact because they are a priority to God. Families are close to God's heart. In fact, uh, they were his idea. And in the uh, Garden of Eden, in the very first part of creation, he expressed how important they were. Look at what it says in Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, I see that it is not good for the man to be alone. We could spend a lot of time talking about why it's not good for men to be alone, but we won't do that right now. But God said, I see that it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make the companion he needs one just right for him. And so God puts Adam and Eve in the garden and he realized it wasn't good for them to be uh, alone. So he made them partners. He made partners for them. And uh, after he made Adam and Eve a family, he blessed them and he told them to be fruitful and multiply. Basically, he said, go make lots of babies and fill the earth. And later, after they fell into sin, God continued his plan for families. And he even spoke prophetically about the salvation that would come through a baby that would be born in the future. And throughout the Bible, God keeps emphasizing that he's going to work through families. After the flood, God tells Noah and his sons again to be fruitful and multiply. And later he chooses Abraham to be the father of a great nation, of a huge family, and he miraculously gives Abraham a son in his old age. And this continues all the way through Scripture to the day when, as Galatians says, but when the time was right, God sent his son, and a woman gave birth to him. His son obeyed the law so he could set us free from the law, and we could become God's children. So when God sent Jesus to earth, he had him born into a family. And through his death on the cross, we can become part of God's family. I think it's pretty awesome. And all of this makes the family pretty important. Do you realize that God established the institution of the family, the institution of marriage and family, before he established his church? Long before he established his church, he established the family as an important institution. And so when our elders decided several years ago to define the bullseye of our target, everybody's on our target, but to define the bullseye of our target as families with children at home through men, we believed that it, we then, and we still believe now, that we were plugging in to an important part of God's plan and God's heart. And I guess I should pause and make it clear that when we say we love families, we aren't just talking about traditional families. We are talking about traditional families, but not just traditional families. You know, a traditional family with a mom and a dad and a couple of kids. Today, we love and serve families that are broken by divorce or blended by remarriage, and we serve single parents who are raising a child alone, and grandparents who are raising grandkids, and we serve families where the role has absolutely reversed, and the kids are now taking care of their aging parents, and so family is a very broad and complicated term, and I also should point out that when God gave Adam and Eve to each other in the garden, he made them a family even before they had children. I often tell couples 
who are getting married that when their family comes to them, when their mom or their dad or their grandma comes to them and says, when are you going to start a family? You should say to them, we already are a family. Because in God's economy, Adam and Eve were a family even before they had kids. And if you're feeling left out right now because you aren't sure you're actively in a family right now, you might want to read Psalm 68 a little bit later. Because in that passage, it talks about how God is the father of the fatherless and that he places lonely people in families. You see, I don't think it's any accident that when the Bible chose a name for God's church for this community, that he chose to call this a family of faith, the family of God. He adopted all of us who have trusted him for salvation into his family. Throughout the ages, God's plan has always revolved around the family. God's plan and desire has always been for families to raise up children to know him and to love him and to walk in his ways. Look at God's instructions in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you're on the road. When you're going to bed and when you're getting up, tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate. The primary plan of God has been to influence children towards him through family units. But families today are in deep trouble because they've not been teaching their children about faith. Some have thought, you know, I'm not going to shove the Bible down my kids' throats. I'm not going to force them to go to church. When they're old enough, they can decide what they believe about Jesus and about faith. And the problem is that these parents forgot that while they're not teaching their children about Jesus, while they're not teaching their children about faith, others are teaching their children. Others are teaching their children messages that are absolutely opposed to the truth of God and the love of God. And it might sound nice to say we're going to raise our kids neutrally, but it's impossible to do. So at Impact, we love families because they are a high priority in God's plan for all of us. Right now, I want you to hear from our kids director, Abby Robinson, who will help us in understanding the we. Thank you. Good morning, Happy Mother's Day, all you moms out there. What a great day. I am honored to be able to speak to you this morning on a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, I have two daughters myself, and in just a short couple weeks, my youngest will be turning 18 and graduating high school. So all of you know what that means. I have been setting myself up for emotional breakdowns basically every single day. I've been looking through photo albums. I've been looking at the old stuffed animals, memorabilia, all that stuff. Um, so at any given moment, I can just break out into tears, right? So um, if you haven't been there yet, it's okay. We're, we're going to get through it, right? Um, but... I was also thinking through some of the memories that I had when my kids were younger, and one of the frequent memories in our house is that our house was a disaster. It's a mess. So if you have had kids or just watched a movie or ever even just seen a child, you understand that kids are a disaster, right? And my kids were no different, um, but this particular day that I was remembering, um, my 
kids had literally destroyed the entire house. And I said, okay, motivational mom. I'm not going to get negative. I'm not going to get mad. I'm not going to get upset. I'm going to be positive. So I said, okay, kids, here we go. We're going to clean your room. We're going to clean the bathrooms. We're going to clean the living room. We're going to feel so good. The house is going to be nice and fresh. We're going to open the windows. So clearly I was a little more excited than they were about this proposition. Um, but they went to their room and they, they started that way. And I thought, okay, there wasn't much talk, you know, talking back. There wasn't much hesitation. So I was feeling pretty good about it. So I went to the kitchen and I turned on some music and I decided I'm going to check my emails and, you know, delete some stuff out of my inbox, get that cleaned up. It's been about 20 minutes, and I haven't heard anything. So, you know, if you're a parent, you're like, mm, it's been a little too quiet. And so I go into the room 20 minutes later, and I see my youngest daughter, who has found this long-lost favorite toy under the bed. And so what's she been doing? She's been playing with the toy instead of cleaning her room, right? So again, I'm trying to stay positive. I'm like, honey, you know, we have to stay focused. We have to clean up the toys, not play with the toys, right? And the next instant, out of door number two, pops my oldest daughter, and she's about 13, so catch the sarcasm here. She goes, we, and just turns around and walks away. Now, clearly, in just one word, she had kind of identified the problem with their motivation. You see, when I got them all pumped up, I gave this big parent pep talk. I said, we're going to clean the house. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. But when they looked around, I was gone. They were alone in their rooms. And where was I? As far as they knew, I was listening to music and playing games on the computer, right? They didn't think I was doing a thing. And so we have to ask ourselves, um, is that what we do sometimes, not just as parents, but even as a church? You see, we has three distinct parts. We, when I say it, I'm talking about myself, but I'm also including you. But that doesn't mean that we're doing it separately, right? When I say we love families, I'm talking about or insinuating this idea of togetherness. So one of the stories that I love in the Bible that reminds me of a story of families coming together is in the book of Nehemiah. And just a little backstory: story, um, Nehemiah is um, a story about the nation of Israel. They've been exiled. It's been over 70 years. They've not been in Israel, and they've been allowed to return home. So they're coming back to Israel, and it's a mess. King Solomon's temple's been destroyed, the city walls are destroyed, the gates are broken down, and this is leaving the city defenseless. It's leaving them um, open to not only attacks from the outside, but also as a nation that's been gone, they're kind of strangers. They're strangers in their own land. So Nehemiah's got a mess on his hand, right? So what does he do? His plan? I'd be like calling the National Guard. Like the walls are broken down, this is a mess, we need like people with, you know, skills, right? He calls families. His plan is families. He takes and calls, literally in chapter 3, family name by family name, and calls them to the wall to fix what has been broken. And as they begin to work, they're working, the people that were there don't like them, and they're plotting to attack them, and it's kind of a negative vibe. So what does he do? First thing Nehemiah does is he prays. In Nehemiah 4, 8 through 9, he says, They all plotted to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Notice he said, we prayed. Not just Nehemiah, not just the leaders. He said, we prayed. They came together, families and as a community, and they all prayed. And notice they did that first. They didn't come up with their own plan. They didn't try to fix the problem themselves. The first thing they did was that they prayed. 
Now, he's just got these regular people, or as Pastor Steve was talking about earlier, they're just ordinary, right? They're not construction workers. They're not engineers. They're not specialists in this. And now they're being attacked. And in Nehemiah 4, 11 through 12, it says, Meanwhile, the people in Judah said the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. They were tired. They're being attacked. And it's starting to look hopeless. Parents, have you ever felt that way? You wake up and it's a mess again. You thought the house was clean when you went to bed, but apparently, I don't know, magic leprechauns came overnight, and it was just a mess again. And you're tired, and the kids are fighting again. Maybe you and your husband are fighting again, or you and your wife. So what does Nehemiah do? And again, Nehemiah calls on families. Nehemiah 4, 13 through 14, he says, Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for our brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. He put entire families on the front line. You see, he knew the power of having families be shoulder to shoulder. You see, when you can see what you're fighting for, it makes a huge difference. When that's right in front of you and it's right there beside you, it's powerful. So can you imagine that today, putting our kids on a front line or a battle zone? I mean, as parents, we have the exact opposite instinct. When we see danger or something broken, we want to remove our children. We want to hide our families from that. Nehemiah puts them right up there and right in front of them. So what if I told you your kids, your families, they are on the front lines. They are in a battle zone. You see, we've all heard the statistics. We've heard the statistics about divorce or single parents struggling financially, anxiety, depression, suicide, school shootings, substance abuse, all of these things. And sometimes it can sound overwhelming, can it? And sometimes it feels like maybe America has just gone too far, this nation, there's no hope, and it feels kind of like Nehemiah did at that wall, right? That it's just hopeless and we're tired and what are we going to do? But let me challenge you. I don't think this is anything new. You see, the Bible, first book, Genesis, by chapter 3, there's the fall of man. And shortly after that, Cain kills his very own brother, Abel. And by chapter 6, I mean, chapter 6, look at this Bible. It's not that big, guys. It's pretty big, but chapter 6, Genesis is just like short book. God's done, son. Like He is flooding the earth. He says, this is too much. There's too much. And so sometimes when we feel like, it's different. America's worse off. Somehow this is a worse generation. Let me tell you, unfortunately, sin and brokenness is nothing new. Now, that's not to depress you. That's not to be negative. That should be hope because, you see, in this story of Nehemiah, what does he do? He uses those same broken people. So Nehemiah calls them to remember the Lord and fight. And in Nehemiah 4, 16 through 18, he says, From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. So the families finished the wall because they were doing two things. First of all, they were working really hard, but they were also supported. So church, I want to ask you today, are we as a church loving families? Are we defending them? See, the leadership here is prioritized families. And maybe if you're not sure of that, 
I just encourage you to look around. This entire building, um, the soccer fields, the basketball gyms, this building was built for families. It was built as a safe place to attract families to come because we want to share the love of Christ with families. Our programs that we have here, you think, wow, we've got all these great programs. This is really cool. But guess what? They're not just programs for the sake of having programs. They're programs designed specifically to target different areas of your kids' and your family's lives, like worship. It's important to teach our kids how to worship. And sometimes that's hard to do in your living room by yourself. So bringing them here gives you that opportunity. Service, teaching your kids to serve. If I can tell you not one other thing to do with your kids, teach them to serve. And the only way they see that is by you doing it. Even our curriculum here involves parents. Um, you get those take-home sheets if you're a parent here and they get lost in your car and they're everywhere. Do you know on those gives you things to do with your kids? It gives you devotional times, things to do in the car, bathtub, while you're eating. We have our social media pages that have resources and blogs. We have parenting classes. We have parent dedication. All of these things are designed so that you feel supported and that we are helping you. And if at any point you feel like it's not, come and talk to us. We don't want programs for the sake of programs. We want programs for the sake of purpose. So were the families that Nehemiah had in Jerusalem at some point, were they just special, these magic you know, perfect people, some special generation, and they didn't have any problems. Well, if you keep reading in Nehemiah, by chapter 9, there's actually one of the most beautiful examples of genuine repentance in the Bible, which tells us they had something to repent from. They weren't perfect. They were sinners. They spend the whole chapter in chapter 9 telling God, we're sorry. We are sinners, and they're grateful that he just decided to use them in some miraculous way to help rebuild their nation. So that's encouraging, right? God needs broken people, and he used them to rebuild a destroyed nation. That should be encouraging for you. It's encouraging for me. I know I've messed up. I've got issues. But God still uses broken people to fix a destroyed nation. That's amazing. So parents, without a doubt, you obviously play the most important role spiritually in your child's life. Um, we get the kids here for about an hour, hour and a half, and um, we can support and we can resource, but that day-to-day -day discipleship that you do with your kids cannot be replaced, and we're not even trying to replace that because there is absolutely nothing like that day-to-day. -day. And sometimes you feel like, well, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> My kids, I, they're looking at me every day. Maybe that's bad news, but guess what, guys? It's not about you. If you just keep pointing them to Christ, keep pointing them to him. It's not your mistakes they will see. It's his love and his perfection that they will see. And that's all that God needs you to do. So today we've established the parents in the church should be working together. <clears throat> Excuse me. And yet some of us have been sitting here thinking, well, <laughs> that's a lot of pressure. I'm glad I don't have kids. <laughs> I'm not talking about me, right? But can I lovingly say you'd be wrong? In the book of Luke, um, there's this awesome story of a master, and he's going to go away. So he leaves a steward in charge of his house while he's gone, and he leaves a steward in charge of all of the other people that are in the house, all the other workers. He leaves them in charge of all his resources, and he says, hey, there's some expectation. I'm leaving you with all my stuff. I need you to take good care of it while I'm gone because when I come back, I need it to be in good shape. And that's what God has done with us. You see, we've been given this great building and a lot of resources, but we've also been given the people that come to this building. And look around. These people 
You, you are resources, and we have been given that. And we have been charged with taking good care of that. You see, according to the current study um, from Barna, it says 77% of people that will ever come to a saving faith in Christ will do so before the age of 21. I have to ask myself, does my life reflect the urgency of that statistic? You think, wow, that's easy for you to say. You're the kids director. But I can have all the programs and do tasks, and I can still miss this, right? You see, this is telling me that almost 80% of the people that will ever come to know Christ will do so probably while they're still in your homes. That is huge, guys. And it's not huge in a heavy and responsibility kind of manner. Think about this. It's huge in opportunity. Think of it in opportunity. You have the greatest chance to bring your kids to a knowledge of Christ before they leave your house. That should be encouraging for us. So building a wall, it wasn't necessarily Nehemiah's gifting, right? And sometimes I think we might say that as a church, right? Maybe you're thinking, well, my kids are already grown up, or I'm done with that phase in my life. Or maybe you're thinking that's not my spiritual gifting kids. <laughs> wow, no. If you've been back in the preschool, you're like, I'm not sure God's called me to that today, right? <laughs> you're thinking, maybe not. But guess what? Nehemiah, his spiritual gifting wasn't a construction worker, it wasn't um, any of those things, but he was willing and you guys, we have to not leave people alone with their messes and leave them alone as families. We have to believe that it's not just somebody else's job to love them. It's not somebody else's job to speak into a child's life. It's not somebody else's job to speak into young married people's lives. You see, every single person in this room has a job, and that's to love families. We are the other half. We are the other half to stand behind families. You remember in Nehemiah, he said, they put the families at the wall but everybody else came up and stood right behind them. They were present, right? They were there. They didn't just leave them and say, well, good luck. I had my kids. I know how this is going to go. It's ugly. I'm going to go over here. They were there. They stood behind them. So what does that mean for us practically then? It means the same thing as it did for me years ago. My kids needed to actually see me in the room, right? Now, if you know me, you know I'm not doing the work for them. I'm not picking up their toys. That's theirs. But they still needed me to be present and to encourage them, right? Our church needs us to be present and encourage them. They needed me to mean it when I said we are going to clean today, and families need us to mean it when we say we are going to love them. Parents, I know you're tired. There's days you wake up and there's all that mom guilt and, you know, dads, you're stressed out and you've got a zillion things going on, but don't give up. Defend the wall. Read your Bible daily. Attend a worship service. Love your spouse. Respect your ex-spouse. Serve. Those of you that are single and you don't have kids, maybe your children are grown, let's stand behind them. Let's be present. Let's encourage families. You see, maybe you're already serving in Impact Kids or with youth or you're doing something with kids now. Thank you. Thank you so much. But don't just show up on weekends. Show up in their lives throughout the week. Be present. Don't just tell them what to do on the weekends. Stand behind them during the week. Be present and encourage. For all the rest of you, you're thinking, well, kids aren't my thing. Well, guess what? As the kids director, I have a solution for you. I have 160 opportunities to serve, and probably about less than half of those, maybe 40 to 50, actually are one-on-one -on -one with kids. The rest of them, good news for those of you that don't feel like kids are your thing, you don't even have to see a kid. 
We got creative team. We got all kinds of stuff for you. So um, let God use you and believe that you have a part to play in speaking into kids' lives. Maybe you're in elementary school. Maybe you're in middle school. Maybe you're in high school or college and you're thinking, I'm not old enough. What do I know? You know, right now we have high schoolers back there leading large groups, leading small groups, singing on the praise team. We have kids at the pack in our youth group that teach. You know that? You're not too young. You see, Nehemiah put everybody up there. Everyone is needed, every single person. We even have some of our youngest kids in a program called Juniors here, some of our first and second graders that serve in the nursery and serve in the preschool. You're not too young. And it's not just our families that are at stake. You see, it's the entire nation. John 13, 35 says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's how everyone will know Christ's love is how we love one another. It's not just about us, guys. It's God's plan for spreading his love to the world. So Nehemiah changed a hopeless situation in 52 days. He changed the future of a nation by doing two things, by praying for them first and by supporting them. He wasn't an architect. He wasn't an engineer. He wasn't a construction worker, but he saw a problem. He left his comfort zone. He got dirty. He got personal, and he loved people. So I'm asking each of you today to say, we love families, and that each of you believe that the we includes me. Thank you. Thank you, Abby, for what you said, and uh, thank you for how your life demonstrates those same principles. So we understand the priority of loving families, and we understand the we, that it includes all of us. But I don't want to finish without making sure that we understand the urgency. We need to be sure we are understanding the urgency. And look at this passage from James chapter 4. It's written by Jesus' brother. Now, Now think about what it would take for you to believe that your sibling was the Messiah, okay? James didn't believe that at first, but he came to believe that. And look at what he writes in James chapter 4. Some of you say, today or tomorrow we will go to some city. We will stay there a year, do business and make money. But you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Your life is like a mist. You can see it for a short time but then it goes away. So you should say, if the Lord wants, we will live and we will do this or that. But now you are proud and brag, and all of this bragging is wrong. Anyone who knows the right thing to do but does not do it is sinning. This passage reminds us of an interesting fact. It reminds us that our lives are both less important than what we think they are, and that our lives are more important than we think they are. Our lives are so short in the course of eternity. They are just a mist. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow, and our lives are both more important and less important because they're short. And because they're short, that last verse becomes pretty important 
to us. It says anyone who knows the right thing to do but does not do it is sinning. I read a recent statistic that was pretty depressing. Here's what it says. When a child graduates from high school, they have already spent 93% of the time they will ever spend with their parents in their lifetime. When a child graduates from high school, she or he has already spent 93% of the time that they will spend with their parents during their lifetime. Now that's a happy statistic for Mother's Day, isn't it? Aren't you glad you came to church today? But what that means is there's an urgency about our time with our family. Whether you are a parent of small kids or grown kids, whether you're a brother or a sister, whether you're a child still at home with your parents or whether you're an adult child, there's an urgency about how you function within your family. There's an urgency about that because life is short and what you do with your life really does matter. Making future plans is important, but what we do now is really important because life is really short. Look at what Psalm 90 says, teach us how short our lives really are so that we may be wise. So we need to do the good that is right in front of us right now. We need to do the good that's right in front of us right now. For parents with kids still at home, that means maximizing the times that you have with kids. If you're going to point your kids towards Jesus the way he intends, you need to begin utilizing some of the tools that Impact Kids gives you every week. And you need to make attending church a really high priority in your schedule. Jill and I worked hard to make sure our kids were in church each and every weekend, even when we were on vacation. We limited the number of weeks that our kids could miss church for other activities to four. That's right, four weekends per year. We worked with them to get them to services sometime during the week, to get them to events, but we limited it to four times. That might seem harsh. That might seem legalistic to some of you, but we didn't want our kids to get the mistaken impression that something else was more important than Jesus. We did not want them to begin to believe that church was something we did only when we didn't have anything else to do. And it may seem harsh, but because we made it a priority in their schedule when they were young, I know exactly where my adult children are today. One is in church with her family in Colorado, and the other is in church with her family in Arizona. Parents, you only have so much time to point your kids to Jesus. And that goes beyond church attendance also. As the passage from Deuteronomy 6 said, talk to them about Jesus when they get up and when you're in the car and when they're lying down. Now that might sound weird, but it doesn't have to be. On the way home today, ask them what they learned about today. You know, today you might hear about pudding, but see if they um, caught the point. Point out people doing nice things for other people and then say, Jesus teaches us to help others too. Just bring Jesus into the conversation. You don't have to preach a long sermon. That's my job, not yours. 
You just need to help them connect real life to Jesus. And those are things that aunts and uncles and grandparents can do too. And if your kids are grown like mine, become their encouragers. Let them know that you're on their side. Let them know you're praying for them. Tell them what a good job they're doing. Listen to their problems and listen to their joys. Be present. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to continue to try to defy those odds to work to spend an above average time with my kids and with my grandkids and with my dad as long as I have an opportunity. So basically, I encourage you to do the right things right now. To do the right things right now. And remember, if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, it's sin. It's sin. That has to do with how you function in your family, but it also has to do with how you function in the family of faith, how you function in your church family. If you know you should be serving and you aren't, do the right thing right now. Go to our Action Steps booth after this service and say, I need to do the right thing. I need to get involved. And don't miss your chance to do the right thing. Don't miss your opportunity. Don't wait for tomorrow. Time is short. Enjoy your family. Call your parents. Call your kids. Fix that conflict with that person that you're not talking to from your family. Do the right thing and do it right now. I leave you with a quote from an old-time theologian, Irma Bombeck. Here's what she said. Seize the moment Remember all those women on the Titanic who waved off the dessert cart. I like that. Do the right thing right now while there's time.